0: We've done this series with the idea that if any church in the scriptures mirrors the modern West, I would have to say it would be this one. I've uh, long stated this, long believed this, that the Corinthian church has a lot in common with the modern Western church. The problems it has are not unlike problems we have today. But I also believe the opportunities that the church in Corinth currently has at the time that Paul is writing at this point, the opportunities that that congregation has are also not unlike ours as well. It was being seen, at least by Paul, as a good strategic missional space. And uh, Romans was written from that city uh, not long after these letters. But our modern West church has missional open doors right now. It's actually not afforded to many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now. We have open doors that people that, that are still remaining open. Other churches, other congregations around the world are not so fortunate with their faith expression. But the key for this mission thing working is that the place where mission comes from needs to be found in a whole and mature place. For the Corinthians, getting to that place has hit a lot of roadblocks. We saw a few weeks ago that Paul was getting urgent with the Corinthians. Today's message, we're going to see why. Back then, we saw him using the language of the father of the bride, calling a betrothed people to remember what and who they have been set apart for. We've also seen the last few weeks, Paul has doing what he considered to be stooping to the level of the false teachers and their fickle Corinthian audience, by being somewhat boastful for a few paragraphs. We know this didn't sit well with him, and it shouldn't, and it shouldn't sit well with modern pastors either. But he did this in order to actually speak a language that the Corinthians seemed to be gravitating to. Paul has already quietly demonstrated that the call of an apostle was on him and the spirit was behind all that he did and that should have been enough. And when he was in Corinth, it was enough. But he was challenged by boastful men who came in after him. And, he was, and these boastful people were drawing believers to themselves and taking people away from the gospel that they should have been holding fast to. And Paul goes, all right, if you want to boast, let me give you a boast. And even when we see him boast, we see some key things that make his apostolic call even more evident. And that he has the character to boast of afflictions and suffering. That he's able to boast of finding incredible encounters with God in the midst of the hard times. Now, that's not quite what the Corinthians wanted to hear, but it was definitely what they needed to know about this whole gospel deal. Today, we're going to explore the last section of the second letter, and our passage today will be 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and today we're going to start from verse 14, and we will see out the rest of the letter through this, and I will um, briefly examine some points out of this. It's on the screen to help you follow along, but we'll start at verse 14. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. Go over the next chapter there, next ten verses. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down. Now, in case you missed it, Paul is getting ready for the third visit. His first visit was an 18-month time where he established a church. That's documented in Acts 18. The the second visit is undocumented, but apparently it was painful. The third one lasted three months, and is briefly described in Acts 20. This visit that was coming weighed heavily on Paul, because he wasn't sure what he was going to find. And as a pastor, I have to say, I feel his pain right now. There is so much anxiety in this field of work at times, You sow your life into something and then you leave it in the hands of another and you have to trust that they've got it sorted. It's a daunting thing to leave one ministry and and leave that and and then hear news of how that's going 6, 12, 18, years years later. Sometimes they go great. Sometimes, and I've heard the horror stories, ministries after people have gone can go absolutely pear-shaped. We're about 18 months since Paul left here and the reports from Corinth seem to be more of the latter. And this is his last call to get things into the order they should be. So in today's message and as a way of winding up the series, I'm going to break this down into two outcomes that Paul wants the Corinthians to consider. I know some of us have been walking all night, so hopefully we can remember two things. First, that the environment of trust and affection is restored between him and the church. Paul's heart comes out in a really amazing way in this passage, but all through the letter. He's been criticised so much about his ministry, about the authority he holds in the Lord, about his apostolic credentials about the content and the nature of the delivery of his message. His integrity has been called into question. All these different things are being said behind the scenes. But he still holds his line about how he conducts himself in his ministry because he knows what he's doing to be true. Frankly, it would be much easier to do ministry the way Corinth was getting accustomed to. It would, he could actually walk in and slot right in to what they were currently experiencing and they would probably love him. He could come out all boastful because that would take little effort. He could tell grand tales. He could make huge spiritual promises. He could wow the crowd with flashy rhetoric. Paul was a smart cookie. Okay, he plays himself down a lot here but one, he's a Roman citizen. Two, he's a very deeply educated Orthodox Jew. Three, he lived in Greek society. Four, he knew the Hellenistic poets. He quotes them. Five, he held his own in the Hall of Athens. He was no slouch when it came to exactly what Corinth might have actually really wanted. He could accept their finance because doing two or three jobs while pastoring a whole city... Well, that would be a pretty full-on task. So, you know, Corinth was probably a large church by now. They could afford him. He could preach a softer message and not address sin and everyone would love him. He could promise their best life now. He could feed the consumeristic beast that was rearing its head. He could make a comfortable, missionless environment and enjoy a comfortable living doing that sort of ministry and that sort of church. But if you ask any minister what they want to do today even if it turns out otherwise the intent is never that. And this is just not what Paul's gospel is all about. I've never seen a young preacher go, pastor go oh I'm going to go into a church where I can be the most comfortable I can be. Or I've met some and they haven't lasted long. And Paul is nothing like that. His convictions about not accepting a dime from from those guys for himself is still standing because in Corinth, those who were paid were owned. And their ministry would be required to reflect that fact. All the cash he spoke about in the earlier chapters was 100% going to the Jerusalem church. No fees, charges, no third parties to be found. I mention this now because he addresses uh, the bit where he, this is. our speech into the sarcastic bit where he says, "I caught you by trickery." This is actually answering that, another accusation there. But the heart of Paul is this: instead of finance and possessions, Paul simply wants them. He wants their welfare their maturity, their wholeness, their strength and their very salvation to be sorted out. And beyond that, some of their affection being restored to him wouldn't go astray either. He writes if there was anything he could give, he would in order for all those things to happen. If there was any way he could build them up, he would look for that way at all times. Why? Because that is what the ministry of the New Covenant is about. It seems that Paul might have Jeremiah 31 in mind here again when he says that he was all about building up and not tearing down. The promised New Covenant that was to come has that as one of its characteristics, a building effect. I also love his idea of parents saving up for their children. And I think of the way we do life in the world today. Over the years, (laughs) entire advertising campaigns have gone into the well-known saying to spend the kids' inheritance. Winnebago, absolutely, uh, they went heavy with that, that idea at one stage and someone's bought in. The one that makes me laugh is Harley Davidson used it as well. It's been the catch cry of the boomer generation in recent years. But I also don't believe they will be the only generation to think that way. Sometimes this thinking makes its way into the church. And there it can become dangerous, particularly in the arena of leadership. We get so forceful about what we want right now, and even about the positions we hold that the kids are forgotten. Sometimes the occupants of the rooms outside the auditorium right now get affected by that, the next generation of faith. Sometimes the potential babies of faith outside our walls are affected by that. Sometimes a new believer, and often it's the next generation of ministers. Because sometimes we just don't do so well with succession. Succession. The kid's inheritance is spent when everything revolves around our own comforts and needs with no regard for those to come. But we see here that Paul is holding the exact opposite view. He's saving up and spending all he has on those he is called to care for and raise up. And sadly, it's to the detriment of himself. I'll even expend myself in the process. Probably not good self-care there. But you get what he means. I'm not going to hold anything back in my care for you. Throughout this letter, and as I get to this particular part of Paul's heart coming out, I look at this and I sit in awe as I read all this. When I look at Paul's outlook on ministry and life here, This causes guys like me to take a good look in the mirror and consider my motives as I do the work of ministry in the church. It makes me sharpen myself theologically. It makes me think of personal character and integrity. It causes me to look at all aspects of what I do often and allow those things to be tested and challenged and spoken into and mentored and grown. I see hard yards here. And I see the challenge for us all. I see the hard yards of a pastor. I see the hard yards of a house church leader. I see the hard yards of any person who wants to be a servant among God's people in any way. I see an amazing standard that Paul sets for all those who who want to minister in the name of Jesus. Can we live up to that sort of way of life, the less comfortable one, the one that the gospel calls for? And a church, when those who minister to us are operating from that place, not from sometimes the most comfortable place, will we trust them? Will we embrace their leading? Will we learn from their example? Paul is calling this church to ponder a whole new example again. Not the false guys you've got in your midst. They're flashy. They're fleecing you. They've got no idea about your welfare and they can't hold their own in a spiritual gunfight. And then you've got guys like me, Paul writes and says, the gospel you received in the first place still stands. Nothing changed. The other outcome of the letter is this, that the congregation gets back to living the way they should be. Being a Christian means that our lifestyle and our choices change. There is a difference in how we live our life compared to the rest of the world. But Paul states that he is fearful of what he's going to find in Corinth when he gets back there. There's snippets of joy and good tidings. There's good intent among the majority of the church here. There's some repentance. There's been some news of brave, righteous stance. But he's clearly worried about the overall state of the bride-to-be right now. And he calls for some things to be dealt with here. The best case scenario is for them to do it amongst themselves before he gets there. And as he writes this, we see what being a Christian should look like. First, he expects the interpersonal skills and the relationships of a person to be affected by their faith. Discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip and even arrogance. These things are to have absolutely no place among God's people if we want all the juicy details and take pleasure in the shortcomings of others, if we'll walk over others to get what we want in life, if we're aggressive or arrogant, if we love a disagreement, if we like being the devil's advocate in situations, like he needs any more help in this world, then Paul shows us here that something is clearly wrong with our faith expression. It's unbecoming of the bride. That's the first bit. Paul's going to look for those things. And he's going to come with an air of judgment against those things. He's taking it seriously. And our moral compass should be pointed upwards too, to the the things that the Lord wants. They lived in a heavily sexualized environment, and so do we. To be called a Corinthian girl or a Corinthian boy was a pretty heavy insult back then. And Paul is trembling at the possibility that the bride he's writing to is still, after all this time, being a bit of a Corinthian girl. Idols and debauchery and sexual misconduct in that setting were all intertwined, as they are today. These things are to cease among God's new covenant people. There is clearly a holy way of life that comes with being in Christ. We're not saved because we clean up our act, we're saved by faith. But the natural byproduct of salvation is that our behaviour and our outlook is transformed. Holiness comes not because we try harder, but because we're empowered to be better. That's the thinking behind what Paul writes in 13 verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. He's calling the church here to get introspective, become transparent before the Lord. He's suggesting that they all take a deep look in the mirror of their character with the spirit that they have received having permission to illuminate the things that are astray and unbecoming. He's calling them to the disorder discipleship that he taught them those, all those couple of years back. He's backing his own convictions, but he's also trusting the spirit is still at work among them. So he's not just ordering them around. I love this, it's actually going, you've got the Spirit in you, ask Him. Don't ask the guy down the road who's going to tell you the easiest answer. Don't listen to the feel-good sermon where the the soundbite is all you're going to get, not the substance. But instead, go and talk with the Spirit who is in you, who is Christ. He's not even asking them to go take my word for it. He's saying, take the Spirit's word for it. And if Corinth stopped for a moment, if they tuned out the prosperity preachers and the anti-alternative gospel preachers, and they tuned out the people who were more interested in building an audience and an Instagram follower than an actual disciple... and instead tuned into the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. They would know this to be true. And then they would once again hear the Spirit's call to repent and set things in right order. Paul knew here that if the Spirit was being heard, his next visit to Corinth will be a joyful one and that even further mission could be facilitated out of their health. Now, history tells us that it was in that three-month time that followed that Romans was written and that the mission well into the West was being considered. He was looking at that congregation and sending one of their members across the pond to Rome with that which he had written. Perhaps that visit was joyful after all. Now, Paul finishes the letter this way. Finally... Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, most of that is standard fare for the way Paul writes. but there is a great sentence in there that we can leave with today. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. I had a new appreciation yesterday for the word restoration. I took a little trip to these showgrounds after being enticed by everything I saw down Commercial Street in the process. I've got to see more of that. And I, my favourites. Give me a Dodge Phoenix any day. If you've got, a, if you're looking, if you're trying to offload a garage, if you've got a few cars, you're going, oh, gee, I wonder who I could actually give a Chrysler to. Come and see me. There you go. That that's the early, that's the early '60s, and then we go into the late '60s. I nearly bought one of those as a plater. That was quite funny. Very big car. <laughs> Now the Dodge Phoenix, and then, of course, the Dodge truck, one of my favourite vehicles on the planet. All these vehicles are just unrequited love for me. But, of course, if you really want to be my friend for life, just put one of these in my driveway. <laughs> Give me an RT Charger any day. I was at this car show, and I was looking at one particular Model A Ford, and the guy standing beside me, Knew the story of the vehicle, and a lot of the Model A cars are kind of like kit cars now, like they're the new AC Cobra. Well, like there's just ready-made 32 Ford shells everywhere to be purchased pre pre But this one had a restoration, and the guy's telling me, "He goes, you should have seen it when it was worked on first. It's taken him a couple of years." but every little piece of rust they found on it, they cut it out. They were savage with that thing. They had to cut it out and weld it and grind it and make it all shape and fit the way it was designed. Every single piece of restoration, even a little hole that big, was a labour of love. Restoration's a painstaking job. Restoration is a cut things out sort of job. Restoration is a reshaping sort of job. And it's a reminder of what it, the finished product is exactly how it's designed to be. Now the full restoration we have, the striving for full restoration, I am still going to be a rusty a rust bucket until I get to eternity, but I'm going to be better. There's going to be bits of me that's been cut out and fixed along the way by the Spirit. Same with you. We're all going to be restoration works in process. Full maturity is going to come, but that's going to come the other side of eternity. But Paul says to strive towards it now. Strive for full restoration. Restoration. That means the Spirit needs permission to do some hard work in us. Uncomfortable stuff. Cutting, welding, reshaping. And as we do that, as we all strive for that, and as we all feel the pain of that at times, He says, encourage one another. Oh, the Spirit's got an angle grinder on me right now. You'll be right. You'll love the finished product. Hang in there. Be of one mind. What is the Spirit shaping us to be? Let's all be committed to that. And live in peace. That even if it's uncomfortable, we can still say it is well. See, when these four things... Have a place, amazing things happen. When all those other wrong things have a place, the moral compass being out of whack, interpersonal relationships not in order, then those four things, and this sentence has no expression. But when the Spirit is front and in the centre in all that we do and all that we pursue and all that we're striving for, this sentence can't not happen. As we close this series off, as I take into account the two letters that we've covered and the ground we've gone over, let me leave a few snippets of reflection with you. One, if you're a minister here, do it with reverence and awe of the calling you have. Make sure all that you do is motivated, inspired, approved by the Holy Spirit. Ensure you stay in the bounds of the true gospel in all that you teach and espouse. Be deeply transparent. Search yourselves often. And if anything is boast-worthy... It's only because Jesus did it, not you. Now you're going, ministers? Yeah, it's not just the pastoral team, not just the elders. Pretty much all of us. And ministers, rise above criticism when you know you're doing right. Sometimes there are stands you need to take, so do that with the confidence that you have in the Spirit. When the Spirit has given you the go-ahead, be confident in that. For all believers, let's be a faithful, betrothed bride, rejecting all the things that will bring shame to that sort of arrangement. Let's live a life that is clearly and intentionally led by the Holy Spirit. When that happens, our moral compass and our interpersonal way will naturally shift. Our disposition will change. Our outlook and our motivations and our priorities will all be transformed. And we will have a greater awareness of the important element of truth. So there's a lot of preachers out there giving mistruth or misguided facts. There's a lot of people working, trying to portray a softer gospel. We live in a time today where we are information saturated and not all that information is right. But if we know the leading of the Spirit, we will know what to filter and what to work through there because the Spirit guides us in all truth. And when we lead that way and when we follow the Spirit that way and when we live in Christ that way, true radical living emerges out of us in that we will be transformed radically completely from the inside out striving for restoration that's what it looks like from the inside out I am being carved and reshaped in the image of Christ and it's amazing what that radical way of life can look like I'm going to leave it there we've taken a lot out of this series been a lot of ground covered for now we're just going to pray, bow in prayer and take some time to reflect what does the lord want to say to you at this time i'll invite the band to come up as we reflect together now so would you bow your heads